Okay, this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Would you say it after me? He who is the blessed and only sovereign. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Who alone has immortality. Who dwells in unapproachable light. Who no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Right on. You may be seated. Came across that this morning, this week in my quiet time, and I just love that. It's like, you know, we're watching the Commonwealth gets a, a new sovereign this week, but I, I love this that the Word of God says there's only one sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All others answer to him, King Jesus. So let's check this out. We're in chat. Whoa. Thought that was the smoke, you know, the sun changing everything there. Uh oh, we're gonna have a light show. I can't start till it stops because I'm just wasting my time until you know. Do I just flick it off and on? Yeah. Okay. Ready? Okay. Ready or not? Okay. There we go. Should we leave it off? Whatever you like. Let's leave it off. Can you guys see me up here? Okay. They're off right now. Yeah, so let's just leave them there, Julie. Okay, sweet. Okay, got your Bibles? We're in Luke chapter 16. Um, and the scene in Luke chapter 16 is, I would say, the same as the previous chapter. So last week when we were at camp, we talked a lot about Luke chapter 15. We, we did our devos and our Sunday morning from that chapter. And so I want to just remind you of that text because the scene in which Jesus speaks these words, it hasn't changed, okay? So remember Luke chapter 15? It's the parable of, it's one parable the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons, which is sometimes wrongly called the parable of the prodigal son. It's the the parable of two lost sons. And Jesus addressed with that parable two groups of people. We talked about this again last week. One group that was there, they were called sinners and tax collectors, and they were a group of people who knew that they were lost. And then there was another group of people that didn't know that they were lost, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and they were very religious, but they didn't, they didn't see themselves as lost. And these two groups are seen in the parable that Jesus told, uh, the, the prodigal son and the elder brother, the two lost groups. And it seems as we read Luke's gospel to me that The scene has not changed. The crowd is still there, but now Jesus turns his attention from these two groups of people and he turns and he speaks directly to his disciples and it's in the earshot of everyone. So everyone can hear him, but he's speaking to his followers specifically and he tells his disciples two stories in Luke chapter 16. We don't know if these are parables doesn't tell us, doesn't say Jesus told them this parable. We don't know if these are true stories, but there is a theme in both of them and it actually has to do with money. So it's really kind of interesting. Everyone say this, say money. Come on, say money. Have I got your attention now? Okay. Safe to assume I got your attention. You know, Jesus spoke a lot about money, more than he spoke about a lot of other things. 
Jesus spoke about money more than he spoke about prayer. Isn't that crazy? He spoke about money more than he spoke about heaven. Actually, when you break down the Gospels, he even spoke about money more than he spoke about salvation. They say this, that one-sixth of the Gospels deals with the subject of money. In fact, 30% of the parables that Jesus told, they have a financial money component to them. Jesus had a lot to say about money and material wealth. And it's not surprising because money's kind of important, isn't it? It's like you need money to live. And Jesus dealt with a lot of people who were both poor and rich. I mean, think about it. He, he dealt with people who were poor who thought, you know, the solution for my life is that I acquire wealth and get out of this situation that I'm in. And Jesus also dealt with lots of people who were very wealthy, who saw their financial well-being as, I don't know, the, the stamp of God's approval upon their life. And so, you know, we can understand why people, whether they're poor or rich, would have some sort of attitude about money and Jesus needed to address it. We can understand why poverty would be seen as a curse, you know, from heaven. And we can understand why wealth would be seen as a blessing. In fact, there's a whole segment of the church in North America that has based their ministry on wealth being the blessing of heaven, right? And they preach what's called the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel. So, you know, when we talk about money, it's, it's interesting to turn and see what, what Jesus had to say because sin has done incredible damage to our understanding of money and wealth and riches. So Jesus, I kind of wonder, well, well, how does he transition? How do we go from the, the, the topic of the lost son, the lost coin, the lost brothers to the subject of money? Well, what's interesting in the story of the, the prodigal son and the elder brother is that uh, both of them had plenty of money. They both, have a, they both had a lot of money. The prodigal found out this, that when he had a lot of money, he had lots of friends, and when his money was gone, what else was gone? Friends were gone. And then you had the elder brother who also had plenty of money. The father said to him, everything that I have belongs to you. You can have access to it all. Yet he had all the access to his father's resources and the prodigal and the elder were in the same situation. It was this, and we said this, we talked about this last week. They were alone. They were both alone in life and in their predicaments. They were both lost. And last week, as we worked through chapter 15, we saw this, that one of the characteristics of being lost is this. You'll be alone. You'll find yourself all by yourself. And these two brothers had plenty of money, and in the end, they had no friends, all alone. And so there is, as we come to chapter 16, a direct relationship between possessions and finances and money and our relationships with people. And so Jesus is going to address this. So chapter 16 has two stories that make up most of the chapter. This morning, we're just going to look at the first one because it gives us enough content to deal with, okay? So we're only going to look at the first one. We'll look at the the second one next week, but both of these stories, before we look at them, I want to show you this. They both start the exact same way. Check out chapter one 
of, of Luke chapter, uh, sorry, verse 1 of Luke chapter 16. It says this, he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man. So maybe if you got a pen, you might even want to underline that. There was a rich man. Now jump to verse 19. And you'll see, this is the second story. It starts exactly the same way. Verse 19, there was a rich man. So these two stories are dealing with something very similar, with, with money. They have a different, you know, point to them, but they start the exact same way. Both of them have to do with the handling of resources and the outcomes that will follow in your life on the basis of how you handle them. So let's look at this first story. We'll break it down a bit as we read through it in verse 1 here. It says this. He said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Okay, so this is a common setup. Like in ancient times, this is kind of how it rolled. You, it was common. A, a wealthy man had plenty of irons in the fire. He had lots going on. He had times where he had to be away on business. He had different things that he was managing and taking care of. So he would do this. He would have a household manager, and the manager of the household would just make sure the house operated. You know, Think about Joseph in the book of Genesis. He had this role at one time. And so the manager was in charge of caring for a portion of the house or the empire of this master and making sure all of the daily provisions were in order. But what we find out is that this rich man has a problem. And it's this, that the manager has been charged with mismanaging that which was entrusted to him, the master's resources. So the master calls him to the carpet, verse 2. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Okay, so it's inventory time, right? Let's find out what's going on here. Time to account for handling that which has been entrusted to you, and then you are going to be removed from your position. That's what we're told is about to happen. So verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to, to beg. So this guy like starts doing the accounting, knowing what's going on in his manager's house. He begins to account in his own life and he goes, uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. I got very few options. My options are slim because physical labor, I'm not capable of that at this point in my life. Uh, to beg that would be entirely shameful. I don't want to go from managing my master's house to being a beggar. So what am I going to do? So Jesus tells us, this guy comes up with a plan. Verse four, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So I read this and I'm like, wow, this is actually one of the strangest stories Jesus ever told. You're like, well, this is not cool. Like, we all know this. We read this. This is not legit, man. This is not right. 
This is completely shady. I mean, this guy is not acting in the best interests of his master. If he was acting in the best interests of his master, he'd make sure he got all of what was owed, all the debt collected. But I would say this, it is pretty smart. Like, I mean, when you know you're going to lose your job and you're about to get the old heave-haw, he's taking care of himself here. He's about to lose his role as manager, but not first without making himself some friends. That's what we find out, right? It's like, he's going to lose his job, but in the process, let's make some friends, and hopefully these friends will become a resource to him when he's out of a job, you know? You might even say, this is blackmail. Do you ever think that? You read this and like, wow, this is kind of like blackmail? Like, in a sense, now these debtors are in debt to him because he's flipped the whole scenario. So this isn't kosher. But it's pretty shrewd. It's a crafty way to look after himself with someone else's possessions and someone else's debt. So the manager has uh, set himself up for the future when he loses his job. And we're going to read this in a second. The master is going to find out about this. And the master's not going to be happy about it, but, but he's going to see that this is a very creative solution no matter how dishonest it was. It was smooth. It's like, Give some credit to this guy where credit is due. I mean, the manager's neck's on the line, and it was a move to save his own bacon, uh, a shrewd move that would not be missed by the master. The master would admit, wow, that's self-serving, but it's pretty astute. It's pretty shrewd. It's pretty clever. It's smooth move, X-Lax, you know. This is one of those. So personally, I think this manager should consider a career in politics, but... Verse 8, okay, let's check this out. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And Jesus said, For the sons of the world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now here's the point from Jesus, verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Like, wow, okay. I was thinking about this. You know, when I, was a, when I was a young guy, I always had work. I was like one of those teenagers who was always working. And uh, I liked to work. I liked having money in my pocket. And I was decent at relationships with people. And so I got my first job cutting grass for my neighbor that lived right directly behind us. She was a little old lady. I can't even remember her name. I was feeling bad about that. I was thinking about it. But anyways, uh, she lived on Fitchett there in the Cedar Grove area. And I got a job cutting her grass. And I got the job not because I had skills at the job. I got the job because of a relationship that existed with my neighbor. Then her friend hired me, Mr. Langdale. I cut his grass. He used to write me a check for 15 bucks when I was done, you know. <laughs> and Mr. Langdale was connected to the RCMP. So the RCMP called me and they said, hey, would you be interested in washing our four police cars at the Gibson's detachment once a week? I'm like, yeah, sure. My mom, she worked at Sears catalog office, you know, at Sunnycrest Mall. And she said, hey, the truck driver needs a swamper in the morning before school to like, you know, help unload things. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. 15 minutes in the morning, I got lunch money in my pocket. Then as the school year went on, some of my buddies got hired at the old Mariner restaurant that used to be down here where Buono's is, you know, steak and seafood place. 
And they said, you should come work there. You should come work with us. So they, they talked to the boss and they got me hooked up and I got hired and I became a, a dishwasher, you know, or as we're known in the industry, an underwater ceramics engineer. <laughs> then I got a job at Super Value because my dad painted Blaine Hagedorn's house. When I was in high school, or when I was done high school, I moved to Prince George, and a guy in my church was the assistant manager at the Sears warehouse, so I got a job in the Sears warehouse. And then another guy in my church, he was a deacon, worked for the Peterbilt dealership, and he got me a better job. Then I came back to the coast. I, I got a point here, okay? I'm getting there. <laughs> I worked for Terminal Force Products for many years, and I got my foot in the door because Rob Lydon was a family friend, and Bill Price lived next door to us. And I could go on and on. I could tell you about the five different churches that I've worked in. But it would be a needle stuck on a record. I tell you all this to tell you there's one consistent factor every time. And it wasn't about my skill. It was about relationship with people. People open doors. That's what they do. Every single job was based on an existing relationship that I had with someone. Well, you know, skills are valuable. I would say that. But I would tell you this. In life, relationships are way more important. That's why many people with lots of education get stuck in crappy jobs. Because they know stuff, but they don't do relationships well. Most of the time, you get your foot in the door. Is this your experience? You get your foot in the door by who you know. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? You know, I tell families this, like lots of times families have moved here over the years and come into the church and they show up on the coast and the family comes and maybe the man of the house comes to me and he says, yeah, I, I don't have a job here, but I'm hoping to make a go of it here on the Sunshine Coast for our family. And I, I tell them the same thing every time. Maybe you've been one of those families over the years. I say, this is a small town. It's all about relationships. You find people and you build relationships and you show up and work, you're all good in this town. You'll be golden. One time I told someone that and they said to me, that's not right. I said, well, maybe it's not right in an ideal world. You should just be hired by your good character, your this or that or that. But I'm telling you, it's about who you know. That's how it rolls here. Get to know the right people and you'll never be looking for work. Now get this. The dishonest manager knew this. He knew this. And Jesus told this story to his disciples to teach them this. I call this message shrewd discipleship, okay? And here is the first principle that we want to draw from this. It's going to be on the screen, and it's this, that people matter more than things. Jesus needed the disciples to know that. People matter more than things. You know, when the dishonest manager lost his job, didn't have the ability to physically work, ashamed to beg, so he worked his biggest asset in the position that he had as a manager, and that was personal relationships. It's brilliant, don't you think? I actually think that. I'm like, this is actually brilliant. Here's the other thing he did. Here's the other thing that he knew, the second principle of shrewd discipleship that Jesus is teaching the 12. It's this, that the future is more important than the present. Let me say it this way. Think about this. The manager could have done lots of different things. He's about to lose his job. So, you know, I don't know, go raid the safe. <laughs> I, I don't know, 
steal money from your man, take finances from him. He doesn't know he's away. The media's not gonna happen. Like, do something that's going to bring provision for yourself in the immediate, in the present. You know, take it, take payment from those debtors. You take everything that's owed from those debtors and get out of Dodge. But the dishonest manager actually knew this in the story that Jesus tells, that when the money is gone, he'd be in the same position, not strong enough to dig and too ashamed to beg. So he looked beyond the present and he found a long-term solution that would set himself up in the future by endearing himself to his master's debtors, by indebting his master's debtors to him, and, and, and now they were in debt to him. It's clever, don't you think? It's like, this is actually super brilliant. And Jesus said to his disciples, when it comes to the kingdom of God, I want you to think like this. Know this, 12 men following me and all in earshot, people are more important than things, and the future is more important than the present. See, society and culture doesn't get this in a lot of ways. You know, we tend to live in a culture that thinks the opposite, that says, you know, things are actually more important than people. <laughs> money and what I have and what I can buy with my money and the things that I can accumulate for myself, that, that's more important than people. And what I can use my money for to experience right in the present, here and now, that's more important than the future. It's getting hot in here. Can we turn the AC back on? Are we getting warm? You guys getting warm? Okay. Uh, can we turn that one right on over there? Is that all right? You guys can hear me okay when that goes back on? So Jesus taught these things to his disciple that people matter more than things and the future is more important than the present. Look again at verse nine. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, say when it fails. When it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. I'll tell you, there's a sure thing about your wealth that you accumulate in this world that you can take to the bank. It's going to fail. It's going to fail. Church, it's going to fail. You know, you can build your RSPs, your TFSAs. You can invest in your pension, the stock market, the real estate, you can acquire physical assets, you can build your pile of gold bullion, it is going to fail you. It will fail. You know, there was a man who died and someone asked his son after he died, how much did you leave, how much did your father leave behind? And the son said, all of it, everything, everything my father accumulated. See, Jesus did not say this, if your wealth fails, he says, when it fails, when it fails. So there are two things that Jesus points out to his disciples about wealth, and it's important that we get them. Number one, your wealth will fail you. Maybe that'll happen at the grave, but it, wherever it is, it's not going to go forever. And secondly, it is found in the adjective that Jesus used to describe worldly wealth. Check out verse 9 again. He called it unrighteous wealth. Mammon. Mammon. Mammon in Scripture, I mean, it's not in our, in our 
version of the Gospels that we're reading, but plenty of Scripture translations use the word mammon. It expresses the idea that earthly wealth can become an object of our worship. Our whole culture believes this, bases its existence on this belief that money should be acquired, acquire money so that you can acquire things and have experiences. It's like money, 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 money. That's the culture in the world around us, isn't it? I would say politicians and lobbyists understand this better than anyone. Unrighteous people are better at this than the people of the kingdom. They use money to further relationships so that they can get more influence and get more money. That's how the world works, right? Sorry to burst your bubble. (laughs) Jesus wanted his disciples to understand this principle and then apply it to things that really matter like eternity. And so he says this, use it, use the money, use what you have so that when you get into eternity, you have lots of friends there. Lots of friends there. In a sense, you know, your money will fail you. So if you spend it on the kingdom, have friends, uh, so spend it on the kingdom. Have friends in heaven because you were generous on earth. That's what Jesus is teaching. February, Lisa, they couldn't get a hold of her uncle, you know. Some of you know this. And so they were like, oh, he's a single guy, an older guy. He's been on his own for a lot of years, so I couldn't get a hold of him. So Lisa and her aunt went to the apartment, East Vancouver, down a bit of a rough area, and in the apartment, there he was, gone. Uncle Adam. But Uncle Adam was longshoreman. Love Jesus. And as they went through his stuff and put things in order, and Lisa and her aunt working through things, you know what they found in the last three years? 300 grand he gave to the kingdom. 300 grand, man. Living in this little apartment, simple life. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. This guy has friends in heaven. That's what I want to tell you. Friends in heaven. He arrived in heaven, and there were people there that were like, Adam, we are here because you gave to the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying this, use the things. He's telling his disciples, use the things of this earth to advance the mission of eternity, to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom. So Jesus takes principles in which worldly people function and he applies them to the kingdom of the God. He says, man, this world It can only see to the grave and it doesn't have the future in mind. So here's the application for us. See beyond things and see beyond the present. That's what shrewd disciples do. That's what they do. Disciples, I would say, disciples can't be nearsighted. They have to have vision. They have to look far into the future and say, Everything I have, the kingdom of God. Look at verse 10. Here's what Jesus says. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? 
Jesus is contrasting for his disciples that which he calls unrighteous wealth and true riches. He points out things to his followers about this. The first is this, that however much wealth you might accumulate on earth in comparison to what heaven has to offer, it's not the same playing field. It's not an awesome thought. It's like whatever you can accumulate on this earth, it is actually little, Jesus says, compared to the true riches of eternity, which he called much. The true riches of heaven are beyond imagination, church. I mean, when you got involved in, with Jesus, I mean, you got to participate in something incredible. And we have the great hope of heaven. The true riches of heaven are beyond imagination, but our experience of those riches, Jesus says, depends on what we do with the little that we have here and now. And if we're found faithful in the little, we'll be given the much, Jesus said. The second thing in the contrast between the unrighteous wealth and, and true riches is that word unrighteous to me that pops up again. I'm like, wow, that's so unrighteous wealth? Mammon, it's actually, it means dirty money. <laughs> dirty money. Years ago, I was thinking about this. I, I took our little bit of savings, you know, I'd had somebody direct and I thought, I can do better than that person. I mean, seriously, <laughs> I'm going to try this myself. So I put my money into a self-directed investment account and I applied some principles that I had read about planning for the future and it's good, believe me, it's a good decision. But one of the things that I've noticed is this, is that it's really hard for me to put my money in a place where I feel good about it, where I go, wow, that's totally ethical and God-honoring. Have you ever noticed that? There's always an angle, isn't there, with that unrighteous wealth? Invest here, it's like gambling. Invest over here and you find out, wow, that company has values that I don't agree with. Put it over here and it's like, okay, they're taking advantage of the environment. They're taking advantage of poor people. You know, this guy is squashing the small businessmen. Most investments, in spite of what they claim, are based on profits over people, aren't they? The whole system of this world is like interest and usury, and we have to like step in and involve ourselves in this unrighteous system of wealth. Whose image is on that coin, you know? New $20 bills coming out soon, right? Money has some things that are inherently wrong with it. That's what Jesus is saying. He's, is, he calls it unrighteous wealth. It's mammon. And money, it wants to take me and use me wants to take you and use you. And so if you're going to use it for the kingdom, you will find yourself in a battle. Unrighteous mammon is full of temptation to please yourself and it can destroy you. But Jesus said, if you'll be faithful in the handling of unrighteous mammon, then you can have true riches. I, I, it's amazing to think about this. True riches. Imagine this. You know, there's no money in heaven. No money in heaven. It's not like that's a game changer. I mean, you know, money is entirely a thing of this unrighteous world. Everything you own on this earth, everything that you've collected with money 
you know, I bought property. The Canadian Constitution says that ultimately my land belongs to the crown. You know, I have a house. The bank holds the mortgage. I mean, the list goes on and on here, right? I own a lot of things. But if someone comes into my house and they're stronger than me, it doesn't matter that I paid for it. They're going to take it. They will take it. They will do with my stuff what they want to do with my stuff. And when I die, there's not a single thing, not one ounce, not one coin, not a single thing that I'm going to take with me into eternity. It will all go to someone else. And they'll say about my things, why did he keep that? Why did they have that? Someone call 1-800-GOT-JUNK or send this stuff to a thrift store. I mean, come on, we know this, right? We know this. That is the nature of unrighteous wealth. And Jesus contrasted it to true riches. True riches, tr true means to be in accordance with reality. True riches is wealth, when you think about it, that actually belongs to you and it cannot be taken from you. And when you get to heaven, that which the Lord has from you, no one will ever take it from you. No one, ever. You won't need money, no interest, no usury, no threat of what you have being stolen, no security systems, no banks, no mortgage companies, just true riches, and it's yours to keep, the true riches of heaven. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples that that everything that you have in this world belongs to someone else, so you have to treat it like a steward. And people matter more than things. And the future is more important than the present. In fact, he says this in verse 13. It's hard-hitting. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. You know, every time I read that in my Bible, I just have to tell you, I don't like it. I don't like it because it stings. It hurts every time I read that. You cannot serve God and money. I mean, I imagine that your heart, just like mine, tries to resist the word of God. No, no, we can work something out here, you know. It, no, Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. I mean, does your heart and mind just battle to justify in some sort of way? No, there's got to be a marriage between these two. No, Jesus said, no, you cannot serve God and money. He said, it's like having two masters. This one says, do this, and the other says, do that. And now I, the servant, am in conflict. Who will I obey? If I submit to one, the other will be displeased. Jesus said, you, you cannot serve God and money. Now he's speaking to his disciples. There's two other groups of lost people there, the tax collectors and the sinners, and the Pharisees and the scribes. And someone begins to laugh as he says this. Check it out, verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. It's very scathing that it says the Pharisees were lovers of money. You, you cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. And when he said this, they began 
to scoff. I mean, if there's a Pharisee inside of you like there is inside of me, I have to tell you this line from Jesus will expose it every time. Like, whoa, 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 what? Jesus, come on. We can work this out. Jesus said, no. God and money are incompatible rivals. Verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Wow. God knows your heart. God knows your heart. You, you can play your games and do your tap dance before men, but God knows your heart. And Jesus says that which is exalted among men is an abomination to God. That's some strong language. An abomination? That means that to God it's disgusting. He hates it. He hates it. Money is such a problem. It is such a problem that Jesus said it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because when a rich man hears the gospel, he's not aware of the depth of his need and the depth of his sin. He just looks at his life in the present. He just looks at all his things and he's dulled to the poverty of his spirit. That's why the gospel, I mean, we see this all over the world, all throughout history, the gospel gets way more traction in poor cultures. I mean, who were coming to Jesus? Who was coming to Jesus? The rich? The poor? Who was seizing the opportunity that the kingdom afforded them? Not the Pharisees. I mean, they were very religious and very, very wealthy. You know, I'm reminded that when John the Baptist was arrested and he was held in Herod's dungeon and he was suffering and he was in a really, you know, dark spot, he sent one of his disciples to Jesus and sent word to Jesus and he asked him this question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Because I'm like, I'm in a dungeon right now. <laughs> and Jesus said this to those who came and asked him. He said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. It's interesting that gospel tells us that Jesus said the poor have good news preached to them. <laughs> you know, Isaiah prophesied this, that there would be an invitation that would go out and would say, come, eat, and drink, and you need no money. Come and partake. There is something about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is not good news for rich people. Because it tells us our supposed wealth is unrighteous, and our supposed wealth is actually not true riches. Our wealth can actually blind us to the principles of being a shrewd disciple, which are this. People matter more than things, and the future is more important than the present. You know, when a rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked how he could enter the kingdom of God, and he heard from Jesus 
the scripture tells us that he went away sad at what Jesus had to say because Jesus said to him, it will cost you everything. Go sell everything you have and follow me. And so when the Pharisees heard what Jesus had to say about unrighteous wealth and true riches, they scoffed at him. So he said this in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You know, you think about the good news of the kingdom being preached to the world. It's like the greatest opportunity that could ever be afforded to a person. Salvation, grace, forgiveness, hope, future, eternal life, spiritual life, be born. I mean, what could be greater than what is afforded by the preaching of the gospel? But the Bible tells us there are not many who will sell everything to gain the pearl of great price. Jesus said not many will liquidate all they have to buy the field that has treasure buried in it. See, wealth can cause one not to seize the opportunity of the gospel. And so Jesus spoke about the nature of God's law. He said this, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away before one single dot is removed from his law. See, lovers of money not only ignore the gospel, but they begin to bend the law. <laughs> they say, oh, no, not rules for thee, but not for me. So Jesus does something very hard-hitting here. Check out verse 18. We'll wrap here. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. No explanation, no commentary, no softening the blow here. It's just like adultery. You know, among the Pharisees of that day and among every culture and every nation since, every culture that loves money, the permanency and the definition of marriage will be on the table in that culture. The Pharisees were debating this all the time. You know, what are the grounds that constitute divorce? Like, can I get out of this relationship? It's like, it's like inconvenient. I got money. When I like want a new car, I go buy it. <laughs> you know, when I want new this or that, I, re I replace it. I'm a wealthy person. I don't have to rely on God or his law. And so the Pharisees were debating this all the time. What were the grounds that constitute divorce and remarriage? So Jesus lays upon them the full weight of the law. And I wish I could lift off the weight from you this morning as we read verse 18, but I can't lift it off. There's no way to do it. Heaven and earth will pass away before that could be tweaked or adjusted before it could be explained away. And the law is meant to show the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. And the psalmist said this, that the law of God is good. He said, oh, how I love your law. And the Pharisees missed the lesson of the story 
So Jesus laid on them the weight of the law to try and get their sinfulness to come to the surface. Because the love of money will dull your conscience. So I have two applications for us this morning. Number one is this. How are we using our money? Church, how are we doing it? As individuals, as family, are, are, are we all about the present or are we laying up treasure in heaven? That's, that's the second application. I just implore you, <laughs> lay treasure in heaven. Lay it up in heaven. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, then it's this reality. People are more important than things and the future is more important than the present.